Welcome to Yerodalo University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we are joined by a repeat guest. Jeff, deep in my old age now, I don't know if my memory is working very well, but is Isabella Kaminska our first repeat guest ever? Yeah, she is. And I think that's appropriate because as a longtime editor of FT Alphaville, she has been in the mainstream media, at least. One of the few people who we respect and really would invite on our show a second time. So it's great to have her back. Isabella, you are on top of the journalistic world, business media, financial press, the Financial Times, great reputation. You were an editor there, Alphaville, everyone's favorite part of FT. This year, you left to go somewhere else, the Dash Second Media. Is that correct? Tell us about it. Why did you do it? So I've actually changed the name. It's now The Dash Blind Spot. And Second Media is still something I'm trying to do, but it's this, it's phase two of the plan. The plan, like uh, Elon Musk's plan. No, not like Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm just joking. But um, yeah, so I mean, I love the FT. And me- I mean, when when I was there, you know, they really schooled me in in so much of my journalistic, you know, education. And I am very privileged to have experienced that. And uh, there's no hard feelings at all. But I think the nature of communications these days is changing in very weird and distorting ways. I think the mainstream press has been constrained in some ways. I don't think it's like a conscious thing. I think lots of people are very oblivious to it. But I felt that what Alphaville was doing specifically was no longer tenable at Alpha, at, at the FT. And that's a function of lots of different things. It's really also about the era we are in now and what you can and cannot get away with. Alphaville was sort of set up to be very quick fire analysis, a bit speculative, moving where people are, you know, covering topics that are being overlooked in the mainstream. And I think the mood now is not really as tolerant of of experimentation or looking at other perspectives. You know, very often we would get things wrong. I'm not saying we didn't, but I think as you don't really learn in markets, especially if you don't look at the full picture, and it's really important to be able to consider different perspectives, because if you don't, you, you, you end up with a blind spot, hence the name. With the blind spot, I'm trying to kind of create you know, very dispassionate analysis that, you know, just because we're looking at the other perspective doesn't mean we necessarily agree with it, but you can't just like filter it out, in my opinion. So that's the short and tall of it. But I have a, a second plan, which is also to kind of try and add credibility to the independent press, because I think very, you know, quickly, I'll just say that obviously the mainstream has uh, a reputation and credibility, but I think there's also a mismatch between the values of the newspapers and the employees sometimes. And whereas that used to be managed from the top down and people would <laughs> repress their you know, instincts because they were trying, you know, for example, if you're trying to get into a very competitive business, you will, you will take any job. You won't necessarily want to write about, you know, I don't know, ETFs or, you know, crypto, but you'll do it just to get into the industry, right? And And that used to not be a problem. But I think in these days, because of how the internet is organizing, people don't feel very happy about the values of the organization they're working in, rally together to try and change things from the inside. And that's all fine and well in politics and, and, you know, capturing politicians and like momentum here in, in labor or whatever. But I think in news, it's really 
for readers, it's very disingenuous because readers are coming to you for a specific masthead promise, right? So if you are the FT or the Wall Street Journal or business focused, that promise is a cool, sober look at markets that is not emotionally charged with political perspectives. I mean, that has always been the tradition of the financial press. I think everything has become increasingly politicized. And as a result, you, you lose that overview. So I want to bring those, the values uh, of the journalists in line with the masthead uh, proposition. So I'm kind of trying to sponsor this idea of values-centered journalism and create a marketplace for codes of conduct so that people know what they're getting. And my general principle is that the idea that bias can never be eliminated is, a, is really silly. Um, I think neutrality is kind of impossible, but it's not bad. Like if, as long as you're transparent about the biases you have and uh, live by a code of conduct and can be policed and you know held to account to your code of conduct, I don't think it's a problem, but that's, what I, that's the sort of culture I want to engineer uh, at the blind spot. And then beyond the blind spot, have the blind spot sort of champion these values in independent media so that we can, you know, basically reconfigure how information is organized online. Isn't that funny, though, Izzy, that, you know, you say about uh, challenging policing bias, one of the ways that you should do that, I think you should do that, is by being open to other opinions and other points of view, right? I mean, I have my own view of the world, but, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, I don't have all the information. So, by shutting everybody else out, you're sort of doing not just you're doing your audience a disservice, you're doing yourself a disservice, too. I completely agree. And I, I think in the modern day culture, um, it's become like almost sacrilegious to question whether you might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, you know, every morning I wake up and I go, am I wrong about this? And that's how I've changed my view on things. And I do change my views. And some people say, oh, you flipped or flopped on this and you flipped. And I do because I think context matters and what's right in some circumstances, and you know that's the right thing to do at that point, isn't always the right thing to do in a different circumstance. So I don't think there should be any shame in changing your position and in questioning, is my position correct on this? You know, that's how we learn. So, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to, Ask Isabella what she's working on. I know that she's extremely busy right now. And all of you can follow along by going several places on Twitter at The Blind Spot. And that O is a zero. Is that right, Isabella? Yes, because the other ones were taken. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't cyber squat years ago in anticipation of this move. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, but when I'm hugely successful, I'll make an offer for the real one. <laughs> also at Iza Kaminsky, I-Z-A-K-A-M-I-N-S-K-A, -A -A, and then online, the-blindspot.com. Isabella, you said you're extremely busy writing right now about where finance, econ, and media intersect with reality. What are you writing about right now at The Blind Spot? So I was obviously... the. Everything that's going on in Ukraine is on my radar. And I had, you know, for a long while, I had been sort of concerned about escalation in that area and also how markets were not pricing it in. My in initial newsletter on February 6th, even though today it's kind of obvious, on February 6th, you were kind of like saying there's some sort of World War Three watch risk. That was still absurd on February 6th. That's how, how quickly the norms have changed. And what has happened is that just as we had to learn about epidemiology overnight when, when COVID struck, everyone's become an armchair military tactician, right? But the market, like people in the markets are learning 
And what I found with COVID was that you have to kind of guide people along with you. I'm learning, the market's learning, we learn together because you, if you're a trader, you can't just read, you know, Sun Tzu or like, you're not going to have time to digest that. Market events are going quicker than you can digest like, like a lifetime's worth, worth of academic work, right? So you need to distill things. And sometimes the problem is with the serious kind of professional specialist press is that they're speaking to, to specialists and, and traders are kind of generalists who have to kind of quickly learn about stuff. So I'm trying to cater to that and have us learn together so people don't feel in some ways sort of patronized or uh, distanced from, from what's going on. So I'm learning, they're learning, and hopefully together we will try and come up with some actionable intelligence that can help us figure things out. And, you know, my big take in war, because I actually hail from media studies, which used to be journalism studies, actually, you know, I, my dissertations were always about propaganda and about, you know, the first casualty of war is truth. So I'm very conscious of how uh, information is being controlled right now. And... And as I, I was at the Polish embassy, not the embassy, a, a club uh, yesterday with the Polish ambassador, amongst others. And um, there was a big discussion about whether, would you have platformed Stalin? Like, would you have interviewed Stalin back in the day? And there's, this is apparently a debate going on in Poland. And there's a big sort of, um, it's related to the fact that the Russian ambassador has been deplatformed. And some people are saying, well, you shouldn't deplatform him because we need to know what they're thinking. And then there's lots of people going, no, 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 you can't. You can't, <clears throat> you can't, can't give someone like that a platform. And I was arguing the case that actually you do need to give them a platform because you in financial markets, like it's not just military and boots and whatever that win wars. It's capital allocation. You know, if you, you know, <laughs> Reuters, Wall Street Journal, whatever, like, some of the biggest fortunes were made from misread from reading the war um, results correctly, right? So if you are believing your own disinformation, even if it is white propaganda for the sake of morale, or I understand why they're doing it, as an investor, you can't afford to believe your own white propaganda because the blowback is that you will like it'll it'll have serious implications. You might end up underspending on energy or national security, like the Germans, right? So if you think you're doing better in the war or your friends are really, you know, your enemies are really your friends, you will create exposures, which then can be leveraged uh, by the other side. So I'm saying that is actually a national duty to look at all perspectives if you're an investor, because not losing money is actually part of the war game. So that's my take on that. So no, we should definitely interview Stalin because you need to know what he's thinking. But maybe you disagree. <laughs> it's an unsettling trend, Isabella. That's what concerns me most is... We can't just consider the question of whether or not we should have RTTV being broadcast or whether or not we should pull it off the air in isolation because we started out in the United States pulling off Alex Jones and I said nothing because I'm not a conspiracist. And then we pulled the president off Twitter and I said nothing because I'm not an orange person. But now truckers are not allowed to talk about what they're interested in. The entire Russian national population and media not allowed to be discussed in and what their perspectives are. I'm just worried eventually that one day when they come after us, Jeff, there will be no one left to speak for the euro dollar voices. Well, there's hardly any of those to begin with, so I'm not sure nobody's going to miss us. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the most fascinating time to talk about euro dollars, frankly. Yeah. Um, so I want, I want to ask you a lot of questions, Jeff, as well. But just on that, you know, I was definitely on board with this whole 
like anti-deplatforming thing. I'm just wondering now, knowing what we know, like the speculation in the Polish, you know, I know the Polish are going to over, you know, you're, you're Polish. So you will know that we, we have a tendency to overreact about things related to World War II. Russians are Germans. Yeah, that's, that's, yes. You have a lot of good reasons for that. So, you know. And we have a lot of good reasons to yeah. do that. And certainly I'm hoping that the Polish reaction is over the top. But I fear, you know, the talk in the Polish City Club last night was very much that, you know, maybe, maybe the Cold War never ended. Maybe the kleptocrats who controlled, you know, the Soviet Union in the end days Maybe they've lost their Marxist ideology, but maybe the, their aspiration to be, you know, to be conquistadors of Europe and, and the wider world, that maybe was never uh, suppressed. Maybe they've been playing a very long game and maybe it's not just Putin. Maybe it's a bigger kind of problem with infiltration. And I think in that context, you know, I'm trying to think, can I give our side the benefit of the doubt? Maybe, you know, why as an like completely ignorant party in this all i know is that people were lying to me and there was conflicting information out there and when you questioned it effectively like shutting people down is a very blunt tool which only makes them more suspicious so as a as a if it was about like controlling things for national security with the canadian truckers or whatever if that's really the case i think it's a silly mechanism because it's actually just ended up causing more distrust and censorship doesn't work in a polarized environment because the people who don't agree with you are just going to think there's a conspiracy if in a more homogeneous environment i think it can work as a tactic but i don't know who knows i have no insight how much denial do you think the mainstream media is in because you know what you're just saying is actually i mean the, the more they try to censor the more they try to you know narrow discourse down into acceptable acceptable limits you know, the more people are going to turn to alternative outlets. And that's really, you know, the Internet has opened up all the op opportunities for all you know, to people to speak and broadcast their views. So people like you and people like Emil and I can get these alternative ideas into a wide arena, potentially a wide arena. So, you know, I have to wonder if is the legacy media really in that much denial about the state of affairs, about the, the fact that we're going through a period of very disruptive technology very disruptive social norms where, you know, the media landscape itself, five years from now, maybe even sooner than that, is going to look very, very different. It already has, right? Just over the last, you know, little while, things have changed a lot. In some ways, it's, I think it, maybe it's understandable because when your business model starts to go wrong, you just, you, you laser focus on your past business model because sometimes it's easier just to do what you always did rather than realize that maybe you need to, to open yourself up to radical change. No, look, I um, that was my analysis definitely up until two weeks ago, and I I just think now, you know, in my in the spirit of am I wrong? Like, if it turns out that this was all for like national security, and maybe, you know, a lot of it was cultural, so I I don't necessarily think it was for national security, but I do wonder if there was maybe that in itself is is um is the wrong take but i definitely agree that um what was going on was sinister that people were being in a democracy that shouldn't happen now is it fair to suspend like freedom of speech to some degree during wartime i think possibly that is justified although i think it should still be compartmentalized like very you might know that like in maoist china there were always two news sources there was the news source for the masses which was like all the you know, propaganda, but the elite had 
the truth, which had all the warts and, you know, bad stuff in it because they couldn't afford not to, like, be aware of what was really going on. And I do wonder if that has been what has been going on a little bit. And so for the masses we've seen, so within media itself, you have two kind of, you've got the people who are just following the pack, you know, the pack journalists, and they're just going to amplify. And it's incredibly kind of mind numbing for me as a natural contrarian. I respond like when, when I see a pattern of propaganda of like people just mindlessly repeating stuff without thinking about it, it just, it makes me concerned that I'm missing something. Before the Ukraine situation, there was a gigantic, wonderful example that would take a lifetime of study to dissect regarding propaganda and misinformation. And that was COVID, the vaccines, the government response, two years, and the media, the media seemingly trumpeting just one particular solution or path and not allowing other voices to speak up. Before we had Ukraine, this seems like it would have been grist for the mill. What were you writing at the blind spot about that particular propaganda push? And it's amazing how we haven't learned from that just two weeks later. For me, you know, I don't understand how in a democracy you can have a, like a go at people for questioning things. Like for me, debate is part of the process of learning. And when science starts to just come down on one perspective and refuses and, and literally silences or drowns out from the other perspective. And, you know, I was speaking to scientists, whatever, and they can't all be nutters. They can't all be conspiracy theories. There's just too many people critiquing it. They can't all be mental. And then I was hearing about people just not being able to speak, uh, you know, for fear of like criminations on their jobs, etc., didn't sound to me like a, a kind of healthy environment for science. And if that's the case, what else is going on? And how can you trust, you know, there, this, this whole idea of scientism? Um, and obviously, I'm not a scientist, so I can only go with what the experts say. But, but when, when people are drowning out one perspective versus the other, I don't think that's science. So that made me suspicious in and of itself. And with respect to COVID, I think, and the mandates, especially, and the Canadian situation, it became really very, very strange to me that you couldn't like peaceful protest is a fundamental right in a democracy. And I could see that they were smearing it's exactly what Putin's doing, by the way. Like, so now Putin is going around saying that all the Ukrainians are Nazis. He's using the same playbook when you're saying, oh, well, all the Canadian truckers are Nazis or whatever, and right wing extremists. Well, you can see with your own eyes that's not true. And you can see it's with your own eyes that's not true in Ukraine as well. So I think what we've learned is, you know, I think it also was an exercise in like how we control money flow. And I, when the Canadian thing was happening, I did think to myself, this is a precursor for like banning um, accounts and seizing property in London for like Russian money. That was the thought that occurred to me. So, yeah, I mean, those are my thoughts. I wasn't very happy with it. I think it was overstepped the mark and I think it lost people trust but then i know there's another perspective and the other perspective when you talk to the other people they see it as totally legitimate and they see it as like you know they've got this war mentality of like well we were in a war against covid we've got to do what matters we've got to all take sacrifices and it's the libertarian kind of individualism versus the collective that's the clash i think in the system but isn't there you know it's a little bit bigger than that right is i mean because 
I think in some sense, we've lost the idea of what science actually is, right? In some ways, we've confused science with authority. It's not supposed to be that way. Science is supposed to be, here's a bunch of evidence. We're going to evaluate the evidence and come to reasonable conclusions, which we can argue about because the evidence, especially in something like a social science, is never 100% clear. So there always should be some kind of robust debate anyway, and then maybe there's a consensus. And I think what happened, Emil and I run into this all the time, is that people have been taught to believe science is the authoritarian picture of a person who has a very important job. We don't know what the job is. It's just, it's very important because look, look at the setting that they're in. They've got, you know, these Roman columns and a fancy chair and all these other things. As long as these people look authoritative, we're supposed to just believe that they're the science. They have done all the work and they have done it on our behalf so that we don't have to, we don't have to evaluate the evidence because it's beyond our capabilities. Let's let the experts take care of it. And that's, you know, what you just said, it's, you know, let's listen to the experts and the experts will tell us what expert opinion says about the expert way to do things. And at some point we got to say, well, what makes these people the experts? Are they actually experts or do they just have a job that makes them look like we're experts? And I think there's, there's two problems here. The public has been led to believe we just experts are experts and therefore, you know, they have all the right credentials. They went, all, they went to the right schools. They've had the right jobs. Therefore, they must know what they're talking about. And on the other side of the coin, experts become more just interested in maintaining their sign cure than they do actually advancing the public discourse. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's going on in academia is really troubling. Um, again, I, I've always made comparisons to the Soviet Union, which is apt now more than ever. But like, this is precisely what happened in the Soviet Union. So like, when I give the West the benefit of the doubt, and I think, well, maybe they're doing all these things, maybe they know... Maybe these experts know that what they're doing is is wrong or they're giving disinfo or they're trying to manage expectations or whatever and they're doing it for a better purpose, but they for for a higher purpose. But they, you know, because they're smart, they really do know what that it's all part of like a logical strategy. That's the benefit of the doubt. Um, like behavioral science and all that. The concern I have is that actually it's just a another expression of the sort of corruption that hit the Soviet Union where People were elevated to positions not because of what they knew, but who they knew. Um, the entire educational system was broken down, and it became a you know pay-as-you-go you know, access situation where the, the qualifications you, you got were often meaningless. Now, people always challenge me on that point. Oh well, the Soviet Union produced loads of scientists; they're all very good and physicists, blah blah blah. And that is true to a degree, but they were they excelled in the sort of like in the in the disciplines where you like book learning, where you just learn and like engineering, very, very excellent sort of engineers coming out of the Soviet Union, absolutely. But that's not really what I would call what the thinking disciplines, right? Obviously physics is, and, and there are great Russian physicists. But very often they excelled outside of the system and within the kind of more conventional world. Like my mum had an economic degree from SGH, which is like the Polish LSC. And she was embarrassed to use it in the UK because A, she felt that economics, you know, taught under Marxism, under a Marxist perspective was like bullshit, right? It wasn't really correct. So she felt like it was like just, you know, that's a meaningless degree. And secondly, she so she wasn't proud of it. And secondly, she just thought it was, well, 
the, the other thing she would say is that she would see how like people who are on, on her course wouldn't admit to that and then just use the piece of paper as an access mechanism. And they all arrived at very high level positions, but they she knew them from like back in the day and she knew all oh, these people, they don't know what they're talking <laughs> yeah. about, right? So those are the two things, right? So which one is it? I, I don't know. And I worry that it, it might be some of the latter. Isabella, what questions do you have for Jeff? Swift, chips, chaps. Swift, I, I mean, Petro, is this, okay, first of all, is this the end of the petrodollar? Like, what, what are you, that's like, there's all sorts of like um, armchair, euro dollar, petrodollar people talking out there, but you are the definitive expert on the topic. I want to know what your thoughts are. The whole Swift thing has sort of revealed the level of economic and monetary illiteracy that, per, that pervades even the expert class because... You know, I think there's this idea that SWIFT equals dollar. Therefore, if we cut some Russian banks off of SWIFT, they're screwed. They're completely out of the... I mean, the White House statement over the weekend basically said, we're cutting the Russian banks out of the international financial system. And then, of course, everybody just repeats this over and over again. And I'm like, SWIFT is nothing more than a messaging system. That's all. It's a text message system. It's a telex. It's a modern version of a telex system. So... You know, we're cutting 10 Russian banks off of SWIFT, which means they'll not have to use a telephone. Um, that's not cutting them out of the financial system. You can understand why not just the U.S., but all the allied countries that are allying with Ukraine are doing this because they want to make it seem like we're not powerless. We do have some form of you know authority over Putin where we can really hurt the guy. When the truth is, again, it reveals the level of monetary illiteracy that, you know, we can't cut the Russians out of the dollar system any more than we can cut anybody out because the dollar system is an organic, offshore, bank-centered, you know, very dispersed ledger system that, you know, the Treasury Department can't just order this person or that person or this government or this bank outside of it because it's a network. And if you start to play around in one part of the network, what networks are really good at is rerouting traffic into other parts. So we're going to cut 10 banks out of SWIFT. They're going to find other means of accessing the dollar system to begin with. But really, it's again, it, it reveals the level of, you know, the experts all said that this was a big deal when in fact it is not. And I think the public has some inclination that this is more optics than it is any kind of meaningful punishment for Russia's activities. And really, the bigger picture here is that it's not government that controls money. And therefore, the issue isn't really the petrodollar. The issue is the euro dollar, which is Money is a private affair amongst the global banking system that maintains the ledger system. So that's really, you know, if there's some kind of slight positive here, that maybe we'll get a, and it's a very tiny one, if the smallest sliver of a silver lining is that maybe people will learn a little bit more about how the dollar system actually works and therefore start to connect some of these dots. So do you think, because obviously with um, the euro dollar system, there's now a inflation concern as well as everything else. Do you think that it's going to be like a beauty competition? Like we're going to be the the best of of a bad bunch, or do you, what? What's your like relative? Obviously, the ruble has totally collapsed, but so you you it sounds to me like you think the dollar will prevail despite the inflationary concerns and all, all everything that's hitting us. Well, that's what I you know the inflationary concerns are amongst the experts. It's not actually in the marketplace. And I know this is hard for many people to believe. Well, no, I read, I read your piece and I, I just, I would love to hear more because I, I want to understand. So you're saying the market is not pricing in inflation the way the, 
the experts are. Not at all. Not any bit. Not even a little bit. And so all the experts are running around saying inflationary currency, inflation, the dollar, all this stuff. And the actual dollar system is saying, what are you talking about? There's no inflation here. Yeah, consumer prices are up, but that's not the same thing. What we're seeing, we're not seeing an excess of money creation in the actual system. We're seeing something very different. The way it comes out very different is as oil prices, for example, go higher, that creates more pain. It makes the economy unhealthier, which eventually leads to its downfall. So the market is actually pricing the downside of what happened last year in consumer prices. And in money terms, it's looking ahead as if the 2020s will be worse than the 2010s in terms of growth and inflation expectations, as if that was somehow possible. So the actual monetary system is saying to you, inflation? What are you talking about inflation? So basically the idea is that we'll have an overcorrection of oil prices, which will then create mass demand destruction. Yep. And basically make everyone not spend any money. And presumably if there is a war, that's not going to be good for consuming because that, that's going to kill consumption. Right. You have a lot of people that say wars are inflationary because it raises commodity prices. They're hard to things are hard to move around. But the other side of the equation is just exactly what you said. Usually demand falls faster than supply gets restricted on commodities. So you have more demand destruction than any kind of upward pressure from commodity prices. So, yeah, even if this conflict in Ukraine and Russia starts to spread, that's even more deflationary than not. So basically, if we all end up in a future where we're sitting in nuclear bunkers every other day, um, you know, that's not very good for consumption. Yeah, exactly. It sure as hell aren't going to be taking risk, which is what the modern economies absolutely need. They need risk-taking behavior. And so if you look at the balance yeah. of probabilities across all of these marketplaces, no wonder they're look, they're, you know, curves are so flat and looking as bad as they are is because there are so many downside risks. And not just, you know, we can set aside Russia and Ukraine. We can set aside, you know, all these other concerns. Just, you know, maybe the economy wasn't as robust last year as everybody, as all the experts said it was. Maybe the recovery was masked by what happened in consumer prices. We had somewhat of a money illusion, which actually was a price illusion based on the supply shock. Maybe the global economy is in worse shape than anybody really believes entering 2022. And now we have all this other stuff to worry about. And what do you think about kind of the crypto class? Like, what do you think? Is there any kind of, is it going to be bullish or bearish or any, you know, the Bitcoin bulls are very pro war. <laughs> they think it's very good for, uh, for Bitcoin. I'm always, you know, Digital currencies in general and decentralized financialization, all that stuff, I think is bullish over the long run. But I think in the short run, I'm still convinced that most people have piled into digital currencies, Bitcoin, crypto, whatever, based on the wrong idea. You know, the idea that the Fed has destroyed the dollar and therefore it's going to go to zero. And we all need to protect ourselves in a store of value kind of way. When in fact, as Emil and I talk about all the time, What's opened the door for digital currencies and allowed them to proliferate and become successful is medium of exchange potential. The euro dollar system is broken. It's inelastic. It, it's, unsuited, it's unsuitable for the needs of the global economy. And therefore, the global economy is starting to pull itself apart. And in doing so, it is searching for alternative means of currency elasticity, which digital currencies in a future day, in a future form, may be able to supply. Not yet. I don't think they're available yet certainly not in the scale that we need them to. So long run, I think there's a role for digital currencies, but not in their current forms or in, current, in their current incarnations. Got to go through a couple of steps of evolution between now and then. And so 
It's not about store value. The dollar's not going to zero. In fact, you know, over the last year, what happened? CPIs in the US went up, CPIs in Europe went up, and the dollar went up too. How can that possibly be? Because it's something else is going on in, in the actual monetary system. And it's again, it's a clash between what the public is told to believe by all the experts and what they can actually see with their lying eyes, right? The dollar's supposed to be going to zero, inflation's out of control, yet the dollar's exchange value keeps going higher. Something is not right here. Yes. And presumably, there's nothing like a potential nuclear war to put the fiat into the fiat, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that is the ultimate kind of base value in the fiat system is the show of strength and who protects the free system or whatever. So, so theoretically by, um, yeah. And, but, but I wonder what, what do you think Russia, do you think Russia will be championing Bitcoin? Do you think it will be? So if it's, um, you know, so your, your take is that as far as I understand, they'll still be deploying dollars. They'll still need dollars, but will they be trying to shift into alternative classes or yuan or any other? You know, what do you think they'll be doing? The Russians have been trying to move, you know, as the Chinese have been trying to deal with their dollar problem for a very long time. It's just a, they can't. I mean, they're kind of stuck here. The reserve currency is the reserve currency, and there's really not much you can do about it unless you're willing to create a competing structure. But let's face it. China and Russia don't make for the, the most acceptable masthead for a reserve currency regime outside of that immediate block. It's not like they can immediately say, OK, we're tired of the dollar. We're going to create a, a yuan ruble kind of mixture and we're going to go head to head with the U.S. dollar. Well, number one, the U.S. dollar is not the reserve currency. The euro dollar is. And there's all sorts of infrastructure. There's all sorts of institutional inertia attached to it. The SWIFT episode is a very good example of the fact that you know, there's a hell of a lot more here than just messages going back and forth. And that so any kind of competing currency structure that has any hope of absorbing the roles of a reserve currency, it's got a hell of a lot of work to do. It's going to take a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of resources and commitment to get it done. And I don't think Putin has done himself any favors here in trying to create some kind of, you know, expand trust in his monetary efforts because at the end of the day, money is all about trust. And in some ways, it's not trust in political authorities. It's trust that, well, it just kind of works, right? You know, if I want to trade with Japan or I want to trade between Japan and Sweden, how do I intermediate that? I just need something that works. I, how can I go from yen to kroner? I mean, it, I just need something in the middle that I can depend on. It's not about the politics. It's not about the U.S. It's not about even, you know, oil. It's just about intermediation. And sometimes the most basic level of trust is it just seems to work. I'm just wondering in that context, obviously, I think the one of the, like, as you say, it's also the neutrality of money that really gives it its value. But do you think post Canadian truckers and potential, you know, there's one thing kicking Russia out of SWIFT, but it's another like potentially seizing assets, right? If we start like dipping into like, say, Russian central bank reserves or, you know, Afghanistan, we also have seen the Afghan reserves, you know, being potentially redistributed to 9-11 victims uh, by fiat effectively. So if that becomes the norm, do you think that risks any reputational damage to the dollar? Yeah, I think that opens the door to private competing currencies, right? I mean, that's what digital currencies are about. How do we make our money and our assets unconfiscatable, if that's a word? How can we, how can we, make, how can we shelter our assets and maintain some form of anonymity and privacy? But specifically Russia, I mean, 
If you look at their IMF template over the last year, they haven't been sitting still. They've been they've raised their security, their liquidity profile. They've sold securities. They haven't bought gold because let's face it, gold is demonetized and it's the most illiquid form of reserve asset. In fact, I think it was the uh, reserve manager for the, the Bank of Russia who said in March of 2020, faced with a dollar crisis, we're not buying any more gold because it doesn't do us any good. So the Russians have been changing the liquidity profile. They've been stocking more in deposits with foreign central banks and foreign governments. And I got to believe that's not the American government or the Federal Reserve. That's not the, the Bank of England. I'm thinking they've changed their deposits around so that they're arranged with Switzerland or India or China, perhaps. So, you know, confiscation isn't, again, it's not so simple as U.S. authorities come in and say, that account, that's the Bank of Russia. I'm confiscating it. This euro dollar decentralized network that spreads the whole world allows for a lot of different places to not hide assets, but maintain workable level of correspondent relationships where you can still operate even if U.S. authorities don't like you operating on the system. It's not the U.S. authority system. It's decentralized, at least in that respect. Right. So even if there is like a, a push to, so basically they can control some of those dollars, but they won't always get all of them. So there'll always be workarounds is what you're saying. Yeah. Let's, you know, the example I used yesterday was the two banks at the Treasury Department, the two Russian banks, two big Russian banks, the Treasury Department singled out for exactly this kind of maneuver. They're not seizing asset, but what they said was in 30 days, VTB and Spares Bank, if you're a U.S. financial institution, you have to sever all relationships with them. No more correspondent accounts, no more payable through accounts, right? But that's U.S. banks. The Eurodollar system is hundreds and hundreds of banks all over the world. So even if the U.S. and Europe and some of the other countries get involved and say, yes, we're going to sanction these two big Russian banks in the same way that the Treasury Department has said, there's still a huge part of the euro dollar network that they can still access, including the chip system, which means they don't even need to send SWIFT messages. They can send chips messages for payment requests. So, you know, cutting somebody out of the dollar system, that's one of the reasons why the euro dollar system grew and expanded as much as it did, because it allows this form of flexibility and pliability when needed. That's maybe one of the positive attributes to it. The downside of it is, of course, in a decentralized system, you end up with something like 2008. Yes. Yeah, and no, I think in some ways we just have to, you know, I wrote a piece about around the Canadian trucker time about how the FATF rules on money laundering, you know, we've put them in, I think, in good faith. And, you know, we all want to like control bad practice and, and I get the whole concept. But I think what that has manifested over time is that actually they're not very effective, these FATF things. And the real problem is corruption at the top level. And if you can like, you know, this has been a, a lifelong problem for, for, for economies, because even like in Roman times, you know, if you could pay people off, if you could, get, you know, pay them off, they will let you in. I think that is the bigger problem. And that's much harder to control with rules and regulations. Corruption is, is sort of, it is a dark horse that is, you know, Soviet example, whatever. When we descend into corrupt societies, that's the real death knell of civilization, in my opinion, because that is when trust has completely abandoned itself. But that, you know, that's what law, that's what law is supposed to be about, to make sure that if you're doing something that's illegal or something that's immoral, I mean, I don't want to mix the two, but if you're doing something like that, you're supposed to be put in jail, right? That's the corrective mechanism, because you're right. People who have money are always going to do what people who have money 
have done throughout human history. The problem isn't the money or the form of money. The problem is the people, right? And so we're supposed to have the system that corrects personal behavior when it steps outside the lines. The issue isn't the form of money that they're doing. They're using to do bad things because people always do bad things, right? The biggest financer of illicit affairs, whether it be drugs or, you know, whatever throughout the world right now is physical Federal Reserve notes. You know, drug dealers deal in physical cash because that's the medium that, that allows them to do what they do. And if they couldn't use physical cash, they would use some other form of money because they're criminals. They do what criminals do. It's, it's not the money that we need to blame. It's the fact that we're not catching them and we're not putting them in jail to stop that activity. I think, you know, one thing I think of now with Bitcoin, especially well, one thing that I have come to kind of like concede on with Bitcoin is um, I think it's an important countermeasure that can like keep the core system honest. So I think as a pushback mechanism, whether it becomes the dominant system or not, I'm not sure it's a good idea for it to be the dominant system at all. But like, I agree with you, like maybe later on, but as it stands, no. But I, I think it, that the world is better off for it being here. Now, the, the downside of that argument is that obviously it can facilitate like terrible, you know, transactions potential, although like the ledger is quite transparent. So theoretically, they can be also chased quite easily. But I was thinking it's kind of like a dual use technology, which is a term that we're now learning with like gain of function, you know, so the, so the technology itself is neutral. It's like how it's deployed. Um, if it's deployed for positive, it's great. It can like, you know, maintain freedom. It can protect people. It can facilitate transactions, whatever. But if it's deployed for bad, it can, you know, do terrible things. So it's really about the morality of the people who are using it rather than the technology itself. That's the problem. And I think maybe the FATF rulings have to realize that, it's more complex, basically. Well, it's also compartmentalized, right? It's that the people who are chasing money laundering are chasing people, people who do money laundering. And so their focus is, how do we stop that criminal activity? They don't have a, you know, a wide 30,000 foot focus on, is this system the cause of this illicit activity or is it just contributing to it? Or is it just, that's what just happens. So law enforcement that's trying to chase money laundering, they're just, that's what they're doing. And so they're saying, we need to shut down all these avenues without thinking about the systemic issues behind them. And I think that's probably an issue of society at large with all of these kind of complex questions that we have. We live in a very complex society nowadays. It's hard, you know, going back to, you know, why do we have so many experts on TV telling us what to think is because it's very hard for regular folks to stay on top of all of these complex issues. In some ways, we have to trust that there are experts who know what they're talking about so that we don't have to you know, analyze evidence over every complex topic there is, including money, including war, including all these other things like crime and punishment. So, it, you know, any successful monetary system, we don't blame the monetary system if people are abusing it because people are always going to abuse whatever system's available. That should not be the criteria here. The criteria here should be, again, money isn't wealth. It's a tool for commercial transactions. And so if commercial transactions are able to take place in a fluid and efficient manner because the monetary system works, that should be our criteria. And if there are people who abuse it, there's always going to be people who abuse it. That's just the way it is. And all, I mean, I was listening to this Ukrainian lady last night and she was saying, oh, well, I'm a lawyer. And if, you know, I would never bank, I would never do business with anyone if I knew my business was empowering. Like, and I, I, I hear her, I hear her point. Right? She was trying to make a point about like financing of, of obviously Russian, you know, activities and how if any, whoever does it is, is immoral, right? Yeah. Should we feel guilty because we bought a Russian product, right? I mean, yes, that's, exactly. I think that's taking it way too far. I've heard examples of 
debanking Russian people. So, I mean, I understand government functions. That seems legitimate. But now there's dictates or suggestions. Well, if you're Russian, we're going to debank you. What? It's terrible. I mean, I genuinely think this whole like talk about, you know, xenophobia, like we, we've been conditioned to not be xenophobic through these like last few years. But there's been such a sort of Russia phobia suddenly. And we have to differentiate. As we say with China, you have to differentiate between the CCP and the people of China. Yes. And the same applies to Russia. You know, I'm no fan of Putin at all. I'm Polish. Like I have n- 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 never in his regime. But like there are good Russians. You can't just we're all losers in war at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what I wrote yesterday. You know, the people of Russia, as well as the people of Ukraine, are going to end up bearing the brunt of this. The people of Ukraine, obviously, more directly in loss of life and the tragedy there. But with the ruble collapsing, the economy being bad in Russia, going all the way back to 2011 and 2008. I mean, the Russian people are going to suffer the consequences of Putin's arrogance, too. And it's there are no winners here. That's that's the problem. There are no winners here. I think that should start to trigger some people's thinking about I mean, why would this guy do this? I mean, what's really wrong here? And it's not necessarily just Russia and Ukraine or NATO expansion, all that stuff. The history of the post-war era. I think there's, you know, what Emil and I talk about a lot, you know, this mass formation psychosis or, you know, free floating anxiety. People don't have a lot of answers because they can tell something is wrong. Something went wrong around 2008 and it's never really been fixed. And it's leading to all these these more and more, more frequent and more extreme examples of the world breaking itself apart, which if you step back and look at the world historically, human civilization historically, this is kind of what happens. We go through eras of globalization. Emil knows more about this than anybody. We go through these periods of globalization based on monetary conditions. It starts to fall apart. It breaks apart. And then we deglobalize, which leads to all sorts of nasty consequences. And it really, because no, our experts can't explain what's happening to people because a lot of them don't really know. They're just credentialed, you know, highly educated office seekers. They're not really experts. People have no answers. But in the good, let's let's bring this back to our opening discussion. That's good for people like you, Isabella, because now you have an open door and a, plat- a potential platform to fill in all these enormous gaps and say, this is what you're not being told. And yes, maybe you don't like this, this perspective, but I think you should probably listen to it if no other reason than to challenge what you think. Well, I think that is very important. And I think you need to have, a kind of, like I said, a dispassionate view of things. And um, that's not to say that you can't, you know, analyze things and, and try and kind of like, you know, interpret things in a way that kind of helps your side. But that is, um, but I think you can't just shut it out. Well, that's human nature. <laughs> that, you know, I think you have to be conscious of that bias, right? I mean, you probably more than, I mean, I don't know how you could be a straight J, you know, a journalist knowing that you have biases, but you always have to be constantly aware of them. It's, that, that seems like a really hard job. Well, I think, you know, the BBC is a very good example where like a lot of people are leaving the BBC because they are so like mandate driven at the neutrality that it's it's like you have to become a priest to join the journalistic cause uh, at the BBC because you can't you're not allowed to have an, a political opinion at all. And so you have to have a poker face the entire time. And I think that is just not you can't live that way. I couldn't live that. That is a calling of it. Like, and, and also in this day and age. Who at the age of like 20, when they're joining like their profession, hasn't already like made their biases known on the social media system? Like 
you can't come in without priors. So I think, you know, unless you, you know, pledge a vow of poverty um, and, you know, make yourself like initially you have to become a monk to become a, a properly neutral, like no one, you know, like a Jedi or whatever. Unless you're prepared to do that, I don't think you can be neutral. And therefore the only, and I don't want to do that. I'm not that much of a, um, you know, I'm keen to like, you know, do everything I can for clarity and truth, but I'm, I also want to have a nice-ish life. Um, I think the only alternative is being transparent about your biases and trying to keep them in check and then wake up every morning and think, what if I'm wrong? Analyze the, you know, the pros and cons. And then, you know, sometimes you'll have a change of heart and then sometimes you won't. And sometimes you'll have a change back, you know, but that I think is the only rational way to operate right now. Personally. Isabella, tell the audience where finance, economy, media intersects with reality. Um, at the moment, or more broadly, um, I think at the moment it's about cutting through the propaganda, frankly, and seeing the real picture of where the money is flowing. I think the fl the money flow, as you know, just bringing it back to the euro dollar. That is a signal in and of itself that is hard to disguise. And when, you know, that's what I mean by the reality reference in that slug line is that eventually you can't suppress it. Like the reality always comes, reality always says hello, right? So you can deny it, but eventually if you deny it for too long, it, the, the fall when you have to face up to reality is, is all the bigger. So that's what I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to ease people into the reality um, that they're maybe not you know, they're blinkered from because I'm doing it for their own good. It's like, like when you have a, when you try and tell a child, you know, you're trying to like shift them into sort of realizing that X is, you know, this is a thing. Like, I'm sorry, it's not nice, but it happens. You know, I think that's why, that's what I mean. And I think for finance, it's very important. But, you know, what, what do you think? Well, I think people should go to Twitter at Iza Kaminsky, Kaminska or at The Blind Spot with a zero instead of an O and the-blindspot.com. That's what I think. Jeff, any final questions? Final questions? No, I, I think that, you know, I think it's, it's great to see the proliferation of voices, you know, as the legacy media sort of restricts itself to what it, they think the public should get or the information the public should have. I like to see, you know, especially you, you Izzy, and other people around the world who are saying, we need to do this a different way. And I'm going to put myself at risk, my own personal risk. I'm going to go outside of where I've been for a very long time, made a name for myself. I'm going to put myself on the line to try to add to public discourse. Yes, there's some self-interest in doing this, of course. But yeah, I think, especially you in particular, there's a bit of altruism here in, this, in the old traditional spirit of journalism where it's, yes, I have these biases, but darn it. You should listen to this other person who doesn't believe what I believe, you know, giving people what people really need to hear, which is a breadth, a wide breadth of information. Yes. I mean, uh, just to, you know, in the in the name of neutrality, I will just say that the, the critics would say that being too open minded to a sinister malevolent force allows like a Trojan horse to be embedded in your brain. And, you know, but that's the reality of open systems. And that's too cynical. That is way too cynical to look at people and say, I'm going to give you all the information and I don't trust you to decide what, what's good for yourself. I think that's just too cynical. 
you know, for my own personal taste, I believe that you give people information and trust that, yes, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to fall in the wrong way sometimes, but it's not going to be, it's not going to always be, you're not always going to fall under the spell of somebody like Hitler if we don't, if we give people information. It's, it's, that's just reductio ad absurdum used too far of an extent. I tend to agree. I, I agree that I have confidence in the yeah. capacity of people's own autonomy and, and agency. Trust in people. It's not individuals, but then at least as, you know, uh, groups of individuals that by and large, I mean, that's what democracy is about. It's the idea that we're not perfect. We're not going to make, you know, we're going to be 100 percent all the time. But if you give a good enough group of people information, a wide variety of information, eventually, you know, they come to the right conclusions over time. Yeah, I that is what I think, too. But I, I do wonder sometimes if some of the elites who manage our system have concluded that the people are stupid and therefore um they're taking for your own good we have to do everything for your own good and that's that's to me dangerous i mean it's dangerous and i i completely side with your perspective but in my am i wrong thing and i know we're coming to time but i did think about like our conversation ages ago um when you were in london about i think it was like the sugar ban or smoking ban Unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like that, you know, the sugar ban, I think, is more complex. But I think that this, with the smoking ban, I do now think, was I a beneficiary of that? Oh, like, instinctively, I hated the government telling me not to smoke. It really pissed me off. But I think now, like so many years later, I, I don't smoke anymore and I'm probably better for it. But I think it's like a relationship between a parent and a child. It's like lots of parents do authoritarian things for the good and love of their children. But every now and then you do get abusive parents who take that trust and abuse it. And we have to be mindful of the fact that not all paternalism is in our own, own, own interests. So it's a difficult Parents one. know their children. That's the difference. Government is one size fits all. And, you know, it's not, you know, we don't, we live in a dynamic, very, very varied world. So that's, that's the problem I have. And then, of course, you know, in an economic setting, the idea of optimal outcomes that, you know, these enlightened Socratic philosophers can sit in a, in a room and talk and come out with, you know, we can look into the future using algorithms and mathematical regressions and decide what are the optimal outcomes for society. That to me is where, you know, a lot of this comes from. And I don't think that's the case. And you're right. When you're when you believe in that, you start to look at the regular fo- regular folks in the population in a very paternal relationship, right? I'm the parent, you're the child, I'm going to tell you what to do because I know what's best for you. And that's, I think, the, the, the fatal conceit, the hubris that, that we can get a couple of enlightened philosophers in the room and they can pick out the optimal set of outcomes and therefore dictate you know, this technocratic ideal. I think that's, that's where it's gone too far. It could yeah. sustain itself maybe for a generation or one king or queen, but thereafter who takes over? So that system could work for a period of time, but then who takes over some despotic son, some, uh, you know, completely, I can't, I've forgotten the word, but spoiled daughter. No. So the leadership, you need a democratic or some sort of Republic system that brings people to the rises, raises them as opposed to uh, a lineage of elites or technocrats. No. We want people to reach for education, um, not to just be, you want mm. people to aspire to learn more, not the other way around. And what you reference is that the, the old adage of, you know, power corrupts and, and we have to be mindful of that. And I think democracy was designed by, polit- you know, that's my other thing, ancient history, right? So I 
I big fan of you know I think you were with uh, Jeff you met him my uh, anapsychosis fellow uh, obsessive it was all about that kind of idea of cyclical flows of you know democracy was designed as a as a controlled rotation of those forces so the idea being you know those usual power corrupts you know you go from a benign monarchy to like dictator to uh, noble elites to uh, corrupt oligarchy and then uh, fair rule of the masses and then anarchy. Um, well, democracy kind of synthesizes that cycle in a controlled way so that you can manufacture a stability that, that is, you can have that cycle, but without all the costs involved with transitioning. It's all very Game of Thrones, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's, you know, it's, in some ways it's counter cyclical in its stability because it has tolerances, right? It's almost like it's a positive feedback loop or where you start to go too far in one extreme, something brings it back. And so you never go too far outside the lines where it leads to the next step in the process and the whole thing, we break free from instability. But I think the problem with that is that there's always forces and there's always changes. We live in a dynamic world. We live in a nonlinear world that it's, you know, it's impossible to essentially predict long-term trends, especially in short-run instances where you know, we're really looking ahead and trying to decide too much, trying to decide we need to do this when we might be better suited to sit back and say, let's see how these things play out organically. And that's, I think, the modern conceit, the modern, certainly technological conceit is that we don't have to let things play out. We can plan ahead. And that view is where we get into this. Oh, can't buy Russian products because that's supporting Russia. Well, you know. A year ago, two years ago, would anybody have really thought about that? And that what could you predict that uh, what was going to happen actually happened? And so can you really sit back and restructure the present for the long run future because you're that certain about what the long run future is actually going to be? But that's what a technocracy seeks to do. And I think that ideal or at least the idea of that kind of a thing, a large percentage of the population has said that sounds pretty good. But do we have the math to do it? Do we have the systems to do it? Do we have the systems to self-correct? You never stop and think about the details behind that. And that's really what the, you know, the monetary system is all, has been all about, is you know, the idea that the central banks are these enlightened philosophers and that they can use psychological manipulation to engineer optimal outcomes. Well, whether or not they can engineer, that's that. I don't think that's true. But can they even decide what the optimal outcomes are? No, I know. I, you know I, well, I hear you. I, I completely, um, you know, I'll be of annoying, non-critical feedback with you. <laughs> yeah. Isabella, thank you very much for your time. We loved it. Thanks for having me. Congratulations in advance on your new venture. As Jeff said, it's courageous too and important what you're doing. So fantastic. We'll support you as much as we can. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. <laughs>